gets a whole lot of people uh, into the back door who may have nefarious purposes for this information. And I think that there's this tendency to aggrandize the record. And uh, if anything, patients will be able to say, he never touched me. Hello and welcome. Ricky Picotta, Greg Henry, coming to your Risk Management Monthly for April 2021. Got good uh, news for you, Rick. Uh, the polar bears have have all uh, crawled back into their holes, and it's actually uh, tolerable weather here in Michigan today, so it's okay. And uh, you are broadcasting from a new house. You are you have quote unquote downsized, as they say. Yeah, yeah. I I don't want to get into this. I mean, obviously, I've downsized. We're now on the edge of a of a golf course. I mean, it's just about as boring as it could possibly be. But, you know, COVID's around anyway. It, it was moved to a golf course or shoot yourself. And so this this worked out best tax-wise. What can I tell you? Well, you know, COVID is uh, kind of attacking Michigan right now. You, you're the, uh, the, you're the head uh, case numbers uh, out there. And nobody can figure out why. I mean, this isn't California. This isn't Texas. Nobody understands it. But yes, we we are the epicenter now of COVID for, for whatever reason. Well, we have a guest today, uh, Kenny Tots, who's been with us in the past. And um, I was looking at the ASEP uh, Now article uh, issue from March 2021, and on the front page are, are two articles. It takes up the entire front page here. One of them is by Kenny, and the other is by Nicholas Jeans and Indira Gauda. Um, and I thought, mm, there's something coming up. And then even before that, like a couple of days before that, I had a friend who sent me an email uh, which referred to this thing and said, you know, I see it as a potential problem here. And she gave me a couple of uh, scenarios. So, Kenny, welcome aboard, and I appreciate your. We have the author of the of the article right right with us. Yep, we can torture him right in front of everyone's eyes. Uh, Kenny has been with us before, and and the sort of the bottom line here is that people forget that during COVID, lots of things are different. There are no trials going on as they as they were. Uh, before this event. Now, they're starting to do some again in Michigan, but this the entire legal process, just like a lot of the medical process, has been delayed. And, and uh, this is a very strange time we're living through. Well, Kenny, welcome. I guess one of the things we're interested in is where did this rule come from of that becomes effective April 1st? What are we talking about here? Yeah, so thank you. Uh, thank you again for uh, having me back uh, on the program. And I'm uh, signing on from Texas today, uh, where we are allowed to basically do anything we want. Uh, no mask, uh, no problem. Uh, Governor Abbott has uh, given us free reign to do whatever we'd like. But uh, the uh, the 21st Century Cures Act, um, and it 
it's not the CARES Act, uh, which is the Corona Coronavirus Aid Relief and Economic Security Act, and CURES is not a an acronym for anything. Uh, the law was uh, signed uh, by President Obama in December of 2016, and it had a tremendous amount of bipartisan uh, support. Now, it was supposed to become effective in November of this past year, but was pushed back to April 5th, which was just two days ago, uh, by the uh, pandemic that we've uh, uh, been enduring here lately. Uh, so uh, basically, um, under the uh, umbrella of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, they've established this Office of the National Coordinator for Health the ONC. Now, within this uh, within this law, there's a ton of technical jargon and acronyms brought in from HHS and ONC, such as API, COC, MOC, HIE, EHR, uh, thrown around. But uh, we're not going to concern ourselves so much with the technical aspects of uh, what's going on with the law, because there's a lot of uh, uh, IT issues that are, are going on. But I just, uh, I, I wrote this article just to focus on basically the the two major tenets uh, of the law. And uh, so the, uh, the Cures Act um, includes provisions related from the National Institute of Health, uh, reducing opioid abuse, uh, increasing access to naloxone, expediting FDA drug approval process for new drugs and targeted drugs for rare diseases. Uh, but those are other parts uh, of the law. The things that we're going to concentrate on are two things. Again, one, the first part of the law uh, encourages interoperability of software, basically by trying to get all of our software to talk to each other and we've been trying to do this for uh, a few decades. Uh, basically, if you go to Hospital A or Dr. A or Dr. B and they want the records from the other facility, being able to easily uh, get, those, uh, get those records. Now, uh, most people know this uh, from using the prescription drug monitoring program uh, I can log on with my Texas account while I'm working in Arizona and look up one of my patients when I'm working in Arizona or, or, or Colorado. I can use the same sign-on. It logs into the same database. It's very streamlined. And they all use the same software, so it makes it really easy and uh, easy to use, uh, very functional, and I get the information I want in a uh, a form that I like. Uh, the other the other part about the law is it's it's supposed to prevent what they call information blocking. Uh, this is the, uh, the the word phraseology that they use, and it's interesting that they use a double negative uh, information blocking. It prevents information blocking instead of saying it's allowing information uh, sharing, which is. Uh, uh, which makes it uh, a lot easier to understand. So it, it's not necessarily uh, requiring us to have any new technology uh, from what we have or not necessarily making us buy any new technology. 
but next year it's going to uh, in, ensure that uh, everybody has the technology that allows a patient to digitally uh, get their health information from from their provider, and that will be part of uh, the mandate. And we, we all know that HIPAA has already allowed us uh, to have access to uh, digital, if available, and paper uh, medical records, but it, it's kind of a, an arduous process, and HIPAA has given us uh, up to 30 days to get our medical records, and the Cures Act uh, will likely significantly uh, expedite the access to uh, digital records, and this will certainly create some uh, problems. Now the access to our medical records will be cut down to just uh, several days. So if, if, you have, if you have paper records still, if you're still doing T-sheets on papers, this just doesn't apply to you. So this is only folks with uh, electronic health records. And uh, uh, so uh, you don't have to worry about that. But most people have gone to digital records um, these days. And the uh, things that are accessible uh, are, are really all of the things that we do in our daily life in emergency medicine, our progress notes and our interpretations of things, our thoughts and impressions, labs and impressions on the labs, imaging reports, but not necessarily the images. It, it, essentially, it's the, it's the whole chart. Now, the, the Cures Act, uh, like uh, many of the other uh, things in uh, that we have to deal with, like Mtala, has uh, has a stick uh, attached to it, and so uh, if you, not necessarily the physician, but this really uh, refers to the proprietors of health information, uh, if they are deemed to be information blocking, there is a one million dollar fine for each instance where the patients are unreasonably restricted from their health information. Define that. Yeah. Define define what blocking is, because I don't think most of us would know what it is, and we could easily do something along the way. And you know, Mike, I don't know how your hospital is doing financially, but with COVID and everything else, they they can't afford ours can't afford to lose another million dollars. I promise you that. Yeah. So if you could just you know think in your mind. You know, the, say, I, Greg Henry, want to get my medical records, and what are some of the roadblocks that they could put up for you to get your medical record, uh, perhaps making you pay fees, okay? So now this is supposed to be free, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to uh, HIPAA had a, a reasonable fee attached to getting it. Um, if if you're requesting like a million pages, then the the act does allow for a reasonable fee for for some of these uh, for you know large volumes of of records. But because you should be able to go in and access your own chart, uh, the, uh, the the barriers to getting things free to you and printing them up uh, should should not be there um, and. And again, we don't know what kind of blocking it is is going to be there. Some of it may be technological, uh, where you may have to have a very obscure 
software program to get into their account. Uh, it only allows you to download uh, PDF or not PDF or HTML formats. Um, it may require you to navigate through so many different pathways uh, within their uh, within their system that that may be constructively blocking you uh, from uh, uh, from what you need, um, or they may only give you access to certain parts of the uh, of the information. Now, the act does allow for uh, some exceptions uh, to block. Uh, there, there are uh, um, eight exceptions in particular that allow people, uh, the, uh, the providers of the health IT folks um, or the health information networks uh, to uh, block people from certain things. And these are things that you might intuitively think um, – with uh, within within your uh, practice, the reason why you wouldn't necessarily want to show somebody uh, their their own medical record, uh, for for example, uh, you know, a, a recent diagnosis of cancer uh, that maybe you're trying to keep from them, or uh, uh, or uh, uh, so, something uh, something else uh, that uh, may be uh, more uh, more sensitive. Uh, but uh, we'll go th through some of these other things, um, like uh, the preventing harm exception. If, uh, for, for instance, if a, a patient comes to you and she's being abused by her husband, uh, we might not want that to be out there because the husband may have the um, access to her, uh, her program. Um, uh, children, for example, this is going to be an issue whether parents will ha be able to have uh, proxy access uh, to uh, children's uh, medical records. Um, and, and then they go on to, and most of the other ones are just dealing with IT and licensing and fees and, and things like that. But uh, I just wanted to kind of get on to some of the uh, EM issues. Um, Actually, and before I go to there, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of stop and see if y'all have any uh, questions or comments. Um, well, you know, as I listen to this, the way you're presenting it, this is a big change. I mean, this this lets a whole lot of people uh, into the back door who, who may have nefarious and th uh, purposes for this information. You know, medical charts were kept uh, protected for a reason for a long time. And sometimes physician judgment was necessary as to what was going to be released, who was going to get it, what if there's another, a third party involved. I, I mean, I think that this is not as simple as it sounds, just let everybody in. On that basis, why would we have any prevention from letting anybody see anybody's record in any hospital? I don't understand it. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And in fact, the act is mandating allowing third parties to have access to your, uh, you know, basically to come in your front door and see how your system is operating. That's part of the interoperability, uh, making sure that all if, if you don't have access to somebody else's 
system, you're not going to learn how to make your system function with theirs. And so trying to do this in a secure way, I mean, we've got enough problems as it is right now with everything allegedly being secure, but now we're opening up the doors and, uh, you know, how hard is it to be a fake patient and, and have access to uh, one of one of the doors into your your doctor's office. Uh, I, I, and again, I don't know anything about uh, cybersecurity, but I imagine if you can get in the front door that way, uh, being a fake patient, uh, perhaps you can have access to somebody else's records or or, or some other um, navigation to something else. No, Kenny, it, 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 you're exactly right. At some point in time, you will make it so available that the nefarious will find a way to mm-hmm. utilize this for profit. Uh, and it could be anything from blackmail to uh, what, you know, your medications you're on, your this, your that. Is this a way now for someone to get that information and, and t- advertise to patients for drugs? I mean, this... I, I, I'm, I'm always hesitant when I see this stuff opening up for sort of free-for-alls. And, and it's not just the medical records. This also applies to pharmacies right? and, uh, and, and anybody else who is exchanging health information. So, you know, being able to access Walgreens uh, for, you know, Greg Henry, you know, and... Uh, you know, not that we really want to see all the medicines you're taking, but, uh, you know, some people might be surprised. Um, so, uh, and, and, and you're right. Blackmail is a, uh, a, a real potential, uh, issue. Kenny, uh, do, <clears throat> so this actually begins in a year from now? No, uh, it's, it started on Monday. Well, uh, what if the hospital doesn't have a way for you to see uh, your uh, ER record. Um, does, does, does the hospital have to hand you a piece of paper and say, here's how to access this record electronically? Yeah, so right now, the hospital, for example, uh, it is allowed to or only needs to work within what they currently have. But in a year from now, I believe it's May of 2022, they're going to have to have the uh, digital capability to for, for people to access uh, their records um, for, for free. Well, some hospitals then may have it now and some hospitals would have to be working on some plan uh, to, to do that. Yeah, many do. Many do, as a, as a matter of fact. Now, here's a, here's a question. If, if we, do we now uh, have a pass that we can allow a, another party, somebody else, our attorney, for example, something like that, to cruise records? Could you bring up and say, I want to see every automobile accident uh, in in Joe Blow's small emergency department in this year, and then go trolling for legal cases. I, I, I you understand where that that information without without some control or reason to have it, it is not a good thing. You and I wouldn't put our social security numbers uh, up on, on the internet for anyone to use. 
why would we let other people into medical records? Well, well, theoretically, each patient is only going to have access to their medical records. Um, but third parties, though, again, are, are going to potentially have a... Uh, a wider uh, availability to get in perhaps uh, to numerous uh, uh, numerous patients, uh, if you will, because again, that's that's what they're trying to do. That's the intent of what they're trying to do. And if their system gets hacked or you know or uh, or somebody pays them a a few dollars on the side, um, perhaps they could, uh, navigate through all the MVAs uh, within a uh, within the the Kaiser system uh, for example and uh, start sending out some business cards well I have no I have no ability to think beyond where the talented 15 year old might take this in 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 data searching and and looking for you know everybody who's who's had gonorrhea treated or something like that. It's it, it the the protections on this have to be pretty good. And and our hospital has already had breaches of security from the outside. From by the way, twelve year old who had, who had gotten in and was downloading records uh, to their home computer. So, so uh, whenever you have this availability, there's got to be some check on it somewhere. You know, yeah. uh, the uh, one of our, our uh, listeners wrote in, and she had some very specific questions. Because I guess what I'd like to get into is how do emergency physicians um, act, knowing that. Uh, their record will be easily uh, obtainable by the patient. So, Kenny, I think you had some thoughts about that because yeah. you thought that there there is the opportunity for creating records that may be viewed as um, problematic. Yeah. So, you know, the the law really implies that we we may not want to be sharing uh, sharing everything. Uh, that's uh, why they use. The, the term information blocking, uh, but it's difficult to know, and 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 it's going to be a, a work in progress when we should not share everything. So the uh, the company that I work with here in Houston, they they have a button on their Epic uh, uh, software that is already pressed. So it's automatically pressed that I am going to share everything with the patient. So when should I not share everything? And and when I go through this list, think of if if I just share everything, at some point, am I going to be accountable? Am I going to be liable for what I share? So... Again, going back to the patient who comes in, says she's been abused by her spouse. She comes in with a black eye, and my notes say what happened. I called the police. The police are, uh, have told me that they're going to show up at uh, the house uh, later uh, later today. 
and um, and uh, speak with the the spouse. And now uh, the spouse takes one of the kids hostage, kills himself, kills somebody else um, because they had access to the uh, the medical record. Is there some potential uh, liability? because I've shared that with the patient and now her husband has access to that. How about, uh, how about uh, a patient who comes in who is uh, suicidal and you note in the chart that they've been there multiple times, uh, they've had multiple gestures, uh, but have never, attempt, have never attempted. And how do you articulate this in the chart saying that they've, attempt, uh, they've had many gestures but never attempted? It, it might almost sound like you're daring them to attempt, maybe that they're not taking things uh, seriously. Um, it, it, is there some liability uh, uh, for us there? Uh, do we withhold diagnoses that are very sensitive uh, so we get a lot of lab work back? Uh, so a cancer diagnosis, an HIV diagnosis, herpes, gonorrhea, infidelity uh, issues. Uh, what if those those are uploaded to the record before you've had an opportunity to have a face-to-face -face clinical discussion uh, with the patient, uh, and and they don't understand the the gravity, uh, the seriousness, or or the lack of seriousness of of those uh, diagnoses, and then they commit suicide? Um, yeah. are, are we responsible for that? It seems to me that the entire litany of psychiatric conditions in which there is always an emotional component between the physician and the patient and how much the doctor wants to record in his or her record is going to is going to take on totally new meaning because if you can't even have private notes to yourself about how you think this is coming or where you may take this is that a good thing? See, I, I, I'm wondering if we now have to start teaching a new methodology of charting uh, to our residents, to our medical students. I mean, it, it, there are things we don't we want to record, but we don't necessarily want the patient to see unfiltered. And well, you know, I, I think we have to be honest. It allows you to do blocking, um, uh, but it doesn't allow you to do a lot of blocking. If you're kind of blocking everything that you're re recording re uh, consistently, apparently that's that's an issue. Could we get to the, uh, some of the points that um, our, our listener made here? Like as an example, she said, what happens if you get into a situation where you're trying to call the consultant and the consultant isn't calling back and you try to call again and then you're and um, you're getting three and four back and forth and there's a big delay? Um, how you chart that may uh, be uh, pre prejudicial in uh, expressing your frustration with the fact that this person's not get returning uh, your call and you're not able to get this person who is needed in a relatively timely manner. And Rick, that Rick, why is that different than it is what it was when we started out? I mean, nothing was fancy the way it was recorded, but we still had problem with consultants getting people in. Uh, sometimes 
It's just teaching people how to write that interaction on the chart, which is important. Uh, because if you start out by, this fool still hasn't called me back again, that doesn't bode well for anybody, I don't think. Yeah, but, she's, go ahead. No, no what I was, uh, the, the first thing that comes to mind is that we have an obligation to be writing those those times down, we don't necessarily have to say, you know, the SOB isn't calling back. This is my fourth time to call. Um, but every doctor on call uh, has an EMTALA mandate. And if we don't document the times that we called and the uh, their lack of, of calling back, uh, their defense is simply going to be, look in the medical record. No one called me. Uh, there's no documentation that Dr. Todd's ever ever called me. And it's protecting you, too. If you have a patient that's bleeding out and you're trying to get the surgeon and the medical record is not reflective that you ever tried to contact the surgeon once, much less twice or three times, uh, then, uh, uh, then the onus falls back on you. So you the also, only real difference uh, from now and, let's say, 10 years ago was that the patient will have a right and, and, and better information of who screwed up. Uh, and, and you, the doc, are going to have probably new obligations in what you're going to have to record. You know, she brought up the thing about describing patients and uh, trying to be uh, kind about it. And morbid obesity may, may leave the chart now. Um, and some other phraseology come come up, which is less. Um, um, uh, I don't even know what what you would call it, but it is. It seems to be somewhat offensive to call somebody morbidly obese. Well, that's why you can use the phrase uh, the phrase uh, uh, five foot six inches tall, uh, three hundred and twelve pounds. Uh, <laughs> that's called uh, recips a loquitur. The thing speaks for itself. Yeah. Or BMI of fifty point six, right? Exactly. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, I, I think all of that can happen. But you're right. Be as kind as possible. <laughs> there's, there's no pleasantly plump. That's a good one. Uh, <laughs> uh, but along that line, you know, you you may uh, uh, see somebody uh, is Munchausen's or drug seeker. Um, but some of these things you you need you need to put in there uh, if you're looking up people's record in the uh, in, in the me medical record they've been there ten times they're constantly requesting dilaudid you look them up in your state's database and they have had numerous uh, narcotic prescriptions from multiple sources I mean those are going to piss off people pardon my language but uh, but you know what that has to be in there. And right. you, you need to justify why you are or are not giving people narcotics uh, or, or any other medicine for that matter. Yeah. Actually, I, I think that the narcotic seeking um, ha has been actually going down as of late. I think it, it sort of plateaued out. But there are certainly, I'm sure, other medical um, interactions that that are not going away and we need to pay attention to by the way the honest truth the fact this is the 12th visit in the last 
four weeks for this patient does two things. It's honest, because if it is honest, it's hard to get in big trouble for honesty. But the other thing is maybe it ought to smack you in the face that 12 visits, that maybe we're missing something here that needs uh, that needs greater intensity. You know, and it's tough to know when you know some of these some of these things are are quite relevant, and and you're caught in a, a catch twenty two. So it, if you block some of this information, uh, and your organization feels that it shouldn't have been blocked, or, or even worse, if the feds think that it shouldn't have been blocked, then uh, you're perhaps putting your uh, your your organization in a precarious situation and consequently your job <laughs> uh, also. Um, so the uh, poop tends to roll downhill. You know, it's very interesting that uh, uh, I can remember 20, 25, 30 years ago, somebody who's got a board in emergency medicine, that they, they sort of had a guaranteed job for, for life. Uh, now, if you read all the current data, what's happening, we did what I warned us about 30 years ago. We turned out way too many docs. So there's going to be plenty of doctors available that, that people can be replaced without much trouble. That's absolutely true. If you look at all <laughs> big hospitals, you know, I just walked through the big hospitals here in Houston and there's tons of new grads, um, tons of new nurses, um, you know, and, and there, there's not even a, a job section in the back of annals of emergency medicine anymore. <laughs> They're all full. Oh, I didn't, I didn't notice that that that's a sign of the times. That's for sure. Yeah. That uh, it really is a sign of the times. And so what it means is, Every doc has to be careful about how they behave, what they write down, this sort of thing. Because sometimes making a few people angry um, can be your your first uh, step out the door if, 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 if it's well, not good. Actually, that's one of the things that uh, our listener uh, put down is that some of these things may not go well with regards to the uh, satisfaction of the patient. She also brings up the idea that uh, they have an opportunity to look at the lab work that was ordered on their behalf. And she said, and, you know, I'm kind of in, in favor of this assertion that there's just a lot of lab tests and imaging done, particularly when, you know, you're doing it in triage and you order a lot of stuff. And, and she made reference to the fact that she recently had a knee uh, replacement and so she had to get a pre-op uh, EKG and the charge for the pre-op EKG was $450. So if you have people who have to pay their um, co-pays and all of those kinds of things, like my brother, his co-pay is $6,000 before he gets started in, with his insurance. So they're- And that's he, just from you. Uh, <laughs> imagine what it is from other doctors. Oh well, you know, God. I think that that's pretty legit that patients may say, uh, you know, did I really need that? Look at this bill. And the, and the last thing she brought up, which I think is probably the most important here, is the um, macros on the medical record. The macros that cr create the exam larger than life, uh, where in fact, um, 
they may not, they, they may contend, the doctor never did that. The doctor never did that kind of thing. I don't remember them, them doing that because these rec records are larger than life. And we know for a fact that um, many of these, if not most, are fabricated with regard to the complete review of systems for a level five examination. I never, they never asked me about those things. And I think that there's this tendency to aggrandize the record. And uh, if anything, patients will be able to say, he never touched me. You know. Yeah, well, the he never touched me argument is, uh, I'm afraid, a valid one these days. You know, we're old enough, certainly you and I are, Rick, uh, to remember the days when we were supposed to do real <laughs> exams on people. And uh, now examination has become a skill which is almost lost. You know, if you can't uh, send off a gallon of blood or shoot uh, radiation at it and get a diagnosis, nobody examines anymore. The, ca the CAT scan is an essential part of the physical exam. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, as as a uh, when I was a medical director, uh, we had to go through a, a certain number of charts each uh, e each week or each month, and I can't tell you how many times I would see somebody come in with an earache, and there would be a GU exam documented on, on that <laughs> chart. And uh, so, going to what. Uh, uh, what Rick just said, <clears throat> that is a very, very common uh, occurrence. And and because I also uh, am tasked with reviewing a lot of medical bills, I, I and because people have these high deductible policies, people will come to me and ask me to look at, at the what's documented on their record and see if the ordering of tests is consistent with the uh, with what's documented, and they may say, "Hey, I never looked into. Uh, they never looked in my eyes. They never checked my cranial nerves." And I send off a, a letter to the uh, the physician or the group, and uh, just simply explaining that the patient uh, never had these uh, exams done or there's no justification for the exam, or you're saying that you actually did the exam and they never happened. And uh, this is creating some huge problems uh, for yourself. Uh, you know, fraud in healthcare, uh, that gets you put in jail. That's not just a fine. Uh, those are criminal offenses. Yeah. In, and, all fair, in all fairness, patients don't understand that 80% of the cranial nerves are are examined by looking at their face and talking to them and and doing things like that 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 they may not remember you having doing this part or that but you're right what the patient knows as the patient is quite different than what the physician understands as what may have been done you know, if they smile, they can stick out their tongue, they're articulating words normally. The chances they've got a uh, uh, 11th and 12th nerve palsy are very small. And it, it, we need to know that. Yeah. That's an excellent point. However, however, it's difficult to document those particular cranial nerves if you still have a mask on. 
<laughs> that's that's you know you, you know the uh, touche. <laughs> I, I mean it, it. You know, in fact, I, I'm just trying to think now in the state of Texas and masks. I mean, didn't they used to shoot people with masks in Texas? Well, I mean, that's that, when we wore masks. That yeah. I should say. <laughs> you know, my doctor friend here who wrote wrote in said uh, in support of what you said, Kenny. She said, I've read countless charts that set my hair on fire. She's, uh, uh, and I think, I think that that's probably true. So I think the bottom line here is you better write knowing that somebody may be looking over your shoulder and you, so you can put down the facts you have to be careful about, uh, and, and, and grandizing things. And I think the, uh, these macros are going to come back to bite you because in fact, remember the study we reviewed from UCLA where they looked at all of the, all of the residents, they're all charting level fives they, and they were observed. And the fact of the matter is they didn't ask, you know, nearly half of the questions that they were supposed to ask. You always wonder how can you get a level five from a splinter in the end of the finger, but they do. By God, and it's it's it, it's unbelievable. It, 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 it's it's always hilarious to actually go through and look at two different charts, same patient that they saw the first time, the second time. Oh my God. We do different histories, we do different physicals, and and to think that, that we do this in some sort of uniform way it is not correct. And now what you've really got is the third party, the patient themselves, who wants to get involved in a discussion of what went on. Uh, does this mean that we're going to see more show business examinations in the emergency departments? I don't know. But 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 I th I think always think it's dangerous. It's chiropractic to let the patient just decide whether it was correct or not, uh, and and they don't know what should or should not have been done in a lot of cases. Yes, but they also have access to people who may uh, nursing uh, people that they know. And can you take a look at this? Uh, I don't think they ever did this, and I think that. That's probably one of the biggest areas where I think people can get into trouble is charting things that they, in fact, did not do. Did not do, and, right. And uh, have the patient say, you never did that, you know. And that basically makes the whole record um, uh, suspect, I think, when you start doing that kind of thing. Uh, I guess the bottom line here is you got to write charts now knowing that patients will have really good access to them uh, before. Yes, there was a lot of barriers. You had to physically go to the medical records department, hand them a sign, a, sign something that you were the patient and entitled to the record. Then they would make you a copy and charge you $25 kind of thing. And it was just like a, a hassle. Now with a few clicks, they're look, they're looking at their record. And so I guess we just need to know that and act like we know it. Yeah, and just understand that everybody and their uncle and their uncle's cousin will be looking at your record. Because if, if you can just sit there at home, bring it up on the screen, tap the button, print it out, I mean, 
what's to stop you know <laughs> their cousin in Cleveland from uh, giving an opinion as to the care? Uh, it's it it is a different way of life. It's different than the way you and I grew up, Rick. I mean, we're the we're the oldest guys here, I think. And the the bottom was there was a time when doctors at least got the benefit of the doubt. They don't anymore. No benefit of the doubt. How about one one other one other issue? And I'll let you move on to your your next topic. I mean, how many people out there see a patient and wait either till the end of their shift or perhaps wait till the next or the next or the next shift a few days later to do the documentation uh, on that chart? And if the patient has immediate access to that chart and they download it at, at that time, and perhaps there was an issue with it. Uh, not doing your charts contemporaneously uh, may uh, prove uh, uh, a huge pitfall for you um, yeah. because they, they can download it one day and it be completely different the next day. It can be a, a chart in evolution, uh, perhaps. <laughs> what I always used to tell the residents is, do you know what you call the chart you do the next day? They shake their heads. Fiction. It's called fiction. Because if you actually saw 40 people during the age of COVID, do you think you can really remember the difference in all of their, their stories and their examination findings? I don't think so. I, I, a lot of these things, I think, are made up. It's exhibit Any, one. It's exhibit one in your and uh, in, in your malpractice trial. Right, exactly. <laughs> I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to be with us and uh, getting the word out. Uh, take a look in the March issue of ASIP now. Uh, there are a couple, two good articles there, and it will alert you to what's go going to be required and how you should respond. So Kenny, thanks a lot for joining us. Absolutely. Yeah, Kenny, you had a wine for us, didn't you? Oh, I, I, yes, yes. I, I do. And before but before I say the wine, I, I just uh, want to uh, say a, a shout out to your guest, uh, Dr. Linder, uh, last, uh, last month. She was absolutely fantastic, was an amazing wealth of knowledge just at her fingertips. Uh, I, I thought I'd pass that along. That yeah, uh, I, I appreciate you saying that because I, I agree that uh, I – Frankly, she had this database of medical records scrubs that was just uh, extensive. I think we just scratched the surface with her. And so I told her that um, we would definitely like her to be coming back on yeah. because I, I think that she has a treasure trove there. Hi. So um, I, I've got a, I got a wine here that uh, violates probably every uh, – uh, rule in Greg Henry's uh, uh, rule book of wines. It's a white wine, and <laughs> it's it's a screw top, and uh, but it's not in a box. Okay, it's um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Duckhorn Vineyards. Oh, one uh, of my I uh, love Duckhorn. By the Sauvignon way, Sauvignon Blanc, and yep. it's it's warm down here in Texas uh, this time of year. So this uh, goes great with a lot of uh, fishes and vegetables and things like that. Nice citrusy uh, flavor to it, uh, dry, and uh, it uh, is served cold, of course, as all, all Sauvignons uh, are. 20 bucks um, or, or less in some places and very reasonable. And Duckhorn Vineyards makes 
excellent, excellent wine. Their Merlot also is uh, quite good. Um, a question, though, got to do a question. Since you are drinking it in Texas, how does it go with power outages and uh, electrical grid failures and that sort of thing? Is it, it, is it just hit the, hit the spot? Well, well fortunately, um, when my wine refrigerator, uh, refrigerator went out, I just took it outside and put it outside, and, and uh, so it stayed cold. <laughs> it stayed cold. Yeah, that's that, that, that's that's very good. And and uh, people people were saying that uh, you know Tex- Texas, uh, what they say, have both kinds of wine in Texas, red and white, and it's uh, very important. But um, uh, you, were you part of the power outage? I I, I was. And uh, yes, so I imagine only the people up there in Michigan uh, were just laughing at us. Uh, The thing is, we're so used to snow on the power lines and and stuff falling apart to to us. You you know what you call a power outage? Tuesday (laughs) in in the middle of winter. And it's it's pretty common. But it was it was good to see uh, one of the one of the promised lands, one of the warm South places that got a, a little suffering in this. Ah, uh, well, we lived. Uh, we lived. Build character. <laughs> Thanks so much, Kenny. We'll oh, talk with you again sometime. I look forward to it. Thank bye you. Bye. Y'all take care. Bye bye. Okay, moving on. Let's do a couple of cases. Good. The first one, left buttock pain after a long plane ride. So this is a fellow who presented the emergency department with left buttock pain after an international flight. Presents, uh, this case was presented in the April 2021 issue of Medical Malpractice Insights. The records are unfortunately pretty sketchy, but what is known is that the pulse of the patient when taken twice was 108 and 104. Uh there, there was not much in the way of the examination of the buttocks reported, and certain buzz phrases were not there, like pain out of proportion was not there, or the skin was erythematous, or the skin was edematous, or, or any of those kind of things that you would be looking for in these subtle musculoskeletal problems that just kind of throw you. Rick, did, did somebody take his temperature along the way? Unfortunately, that wasn't, wasn't in the report. Well, they said his vitals were normal, Other, except for these pulses, his vitals were normal. So, so, this, so we this assume is a trap. that his temperature was taken. Yes. Yes. This is a horrible case, actually. Um, on this person's trip, uh, they developed some diarrhea, and uh, it turned out that it was an infectious diarrhea, that, a bacterial diarrhea, but, mm-hmm. but nobody knew that at the time. So after this workup in the emergency department for a little while, the patient was discharged and four hours later returned in cardiac arrest, which is to me almost inconceivable that the patient would have a benign appearance four hours before dying. But, you know, what can I say? The chart is the chart here. And they said his vitals are normal. Um, And the chart indicated that he had a soft belly, no guarding, no rebound, no this, no That's that. That's it. Didn't talk about that. Uh, I, I think the point for us is that we are worst first doctors and that when it comes to musculoskeletal kinds of things, where, it's not, where there's no good history of trauma, that you have to uh, have this worst first diagnosis in your differential and chart like you are thinking about it, like there's right. no pain out of proportion, erythema, edema, 
um, those kinds of things. And, and ho hopefully there'll be a reasonable history uh, that would support some musculoskeletal trauma. But you, sitting on your butt in an airplane is not really, you know, uh, worthy of the diagnosis of some kind of butt contusion or or for <laughs> or, or or something that the like. Yeah, y'all, you've how how quickly we forget those long hours in planes. Let me tell you, Rick, one of the one of the problems with this case, the way it's sort of laid out, is the fact that it has to be something, and you wonder if over time. We know that four hours after he left the emergency department, the patient's in bad shape. You kind of wonder that going slowly is not always a bad thing in emergency departments. People always say they want it fast, they want it hot, they want it now. I think sometimes a little time, particularly with an, a disease like this where we're not sure what it is, and there's an abnormal pulse and the patient has had no trauma, it's pretty hard to come up with a musculoskeletal diagnosis in no trauma. Well, though, usually in musculoskeletal conditions, we basically are they're in and out kind of thing. We don't anticipate any progression of any clinical significance while they're there. So I think it's the was... kind of thing if you move the musculo or the skeletal it reproduces the pain or the discomfort. Uh, there's there's no indication of that in this case, Rick. No, I think this, this gives us an opportunity to uh, advise our colleagues about the necessity to look for this diagnosis, necrotizing fasciitis, when there's uh, some complaint of a musculoskeletal issue, there's no history of trauma, uh, however, and there's a, there, there, there's a tad uh, increasing the vitals and you're putting down key phrases like no pain out of proportion, no edema, no, no erythema, um, to help make it clear to the readers that you consider this diagnosis and the buzzword pain out of proportion is, is I think one of the things that people will be looking for. Yeah. Although let me just tell you, that's, that, that is very definitional, tough to come up with. Uh, what would you have done if you, the doctor in this case, would you just kept them and watched them for another hour till the temp till the pulse went down, uh, the temperatures normal, all that sort of thing? What would we do here? Uh, I I would I would have made the same mistake that th this doctor did. Um, uh, but my, fundamentally, I don't believe that this person could have such a benign exam and die four hours later. Yes, yes, I, 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 I'd like to see, and I'd like to see a really good uh, abdominal examination documented. I think that would be important. All right, next, next case. Next case is uh, also from Medical Malpractice Insight. It's from the February 2021 issue, and it's um, there was a male who presents the uh, emergency department with a history of bipolar disorder and PTSD. And he had been brought in by the police who had been notified during a phone call with the patient's brother that he outlined the specific plan to kill himself. The patient was evaluated by, evaluated by two crisis counselors, not one, because it was a change of shift. And there was also a change of shift between, get, catch this, a, P, a, a, a PA was replaced by an emergency physician. 
No. So it sounds it sounds like they're kind of like interchangeable. Yes, it sounds <laughs> like that to me. Right. Um, in both cases, the shift reports were considered to be scant. Uh, the bottom line: the patient rashly said he didn't want to kill himself anymore and was thought to have capacity, and said he would take a plane home because he lived alone in this city. And uh, the, he felt his family would, you know, be consoling and and help him out, and his brother and his and his mom would would do that. So he goes to drives to the airport, gets parked in the uh, airport garage, uh, about three or four or five stories up, and decides to jump off the garage, which he so does. What it looks like is he was at least since he drove out to the airport, he was at least considering flying home. And then decided to uh, yes. to mm-hmm. end it all, which which is very uh, which is very frightening. Um, let let me just tell you that if, to emergency docs who have done this a long time, I think that uh, hidden uh, hidden depression, psychiatric disease, and and suicidal uh, attempts are the toughest possible diagnoses because they're often smart people. They can hide. They, they, they can sort of play the game with you. And in my career, those have been my most difficult patients psychiatrically. The, the fluid psychotic is not a problem. Uh, we, can, we can hold them down. We can do this or that. The psychiatric patient is, is a tough one, Rick. And uh, I'll tell you, but there are a couple things here that don't work out well. Two, two people... Uh, paraprofessionals thought thought that this guy wasn't right. Um, what should we do about that? I mean, they've got a note on this chart. Well, one was uh, uh, they 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 had different points of view about the uh, whether this patient was suicidal or not, and one thought he was, and the other thought he wasn't because um, they had yes, you're exactly. There were two uh, two different points of view. I think that. Uh, the biggest problem here, the biggest problem, is that the patient was discharged alone. Uh, have you ever done a discharge alone for a person who was who was, who was, who was considering killing themselves? Oh yeah, a guy's no. brought in by the police for crying out loud, and he right. has pre-existing psychiatric disorders, PTSD, has a plan how he's going to c- commit suicide. It's like uh, this, and then you send him out the door. Yeah, you, some you and I, we all know what we do is we find family members. And I, I know how hard that is. And I know how much the family members hate you when you call them up and say that you've got their mother or their brother or their sister there. But you know what? Uh, th- that's kind of part of what we do. Well, you know, these folks were in some other cities, so that really wasn't an, an option. So the question is, what would you do with somebody who has capacity, says they weren't, they've, they've changed their mind, and uh, they want to leave? Uh, that's, that is a really, really, really tough situation. I'll tell you the truth. I'd feed him. I, I'd feed him. I'd shut the light off let him sit, we'd watch him. And, you know, and uh, when eight o'clock in the morning rolled around, we'd have another discussion. But I think, I think it's hardcore when the police bring somebody in who thinks they're going to kill themselves 
to let them out the door without a, a plan of some kind. And well, most of these people, by that time, we can found family members and do something else, Rick. Well, you know, uh, I guess, I guess you could try to commit them to, uh, you know, one of the seventy-two-hour holds kind of thing. Yes. If you, if you think they're a danger to themselves, uh, I think that that counts. And in this case, with the two opposing uh, points of view from the uh, crisis counselors, uh, the bottom line is. The emergency physician has to make the call in right. this case. Right. And you have to Ta use ties don't exist. It goes to what the emergency physician can listen to both discussions, but eventually he's got to take, he's got the, the license. He's got, he's got the insurance policy. He's got everything else. The, the emergency doc at that time has to take the responsibility. Okay, well, I think we've beaten this and don't have any great answers, but no, no. If, if you if you have solved this, and by the way, now during the COVID period of time here in Michigan, our psychiatric cases aren't down like other emergency department visits. They're up. And I think that I think some of these underlying cases are now starting to work their way to the top. Well, you know, we hear that you're having a fourth wave big time in uh, Michigan in terms of your hospitalizations and that it's as bad as it was in the winter. Yeah, if, 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 if we've got this much water and this much cold and this much nasty weather, at least give us some, <laughs> some psychiatric relief. We got none of that. It's, it's been miserable. All right, Rick, let's look at an article. And uh, I, I want to talk about this because I know of no specific case related to an emergency department at this point in time. But can a healthcare worker refuse the COVID nineteen vaccine? Um, this is this is not a unique situation. We have all kinds of cases where healthcare workers. Uh, uh, are given options for protection of what's going to happen. And in this article, this is uh, Carolyn Buper, I, I'm not familiar with her, uh, who's a um, uh, JD, looks at meds, uh, this is in Medscape, December 9th, 2020. So this is not very long ago, comes up which asks this, this question, what are the rights of the individual, essentially, the patient, uh, the, the, the employee, versus those of the patient and what's going on? Rick, what do you think about this? Well, this uh, article was written uh, before uh, the uh, vaccine came out, so it was, it was really pretty theoretical, but she noted that there were no state or federal laws either requiring vaccinations for uh, for this virus or protecting uh, employees who don't want it. But, the, but she said there's many parallels in the world because there's the influenza vaccine. Right. And, and, uh, and, and they said if you follow the influenza vaccine kind of uh, uh, history, she said an employer can require immunization and an employer can fire an employee who refuses to get the shot. How, and then there's a, some howevers. 
Yes, there's there however's and here's the problem. It depends on the state you're in. The state of Michigan and the state of California may have uh, markedly different requirements with that. Here in the state of Michigan, if a patient if a patient is asked or for a employee is asked to deal with patients who have COVID, they haven't been vaccinated. The hospital has an option of put them on another job in the hospital, uh, so they have something down not firing, but moving them to another location. And and all states don't have that option, Rick. Well, that's the idea of an accommodation that yes. you can say, okay, well, if you don't don't want the shot, you have to wear a mask plus one of those plastic face guards or something like like that. Um, employees who sue for wrongful termination may have a case if the refusal is for uh, religious reasons. So, uh, but you'd have to be, have a pretty strong religion that, in terms of some documentation, that your your religion doesn't uh, allow this. Uh, the other thing is some people may have a disability that prevents them from getting an uh, immunization of sorts. Uh, some courts said, and the uh, U.S. Equal Op- Employment Opportunity Commission held that refusal on religious grounds is protected by the Constitution. Yes. Uh, by the way, here in Michigan, when that when this case uh, essentially came up, uh, it isn't this case, but another one like it, they basically said this. Can the employer accommodate the uh, the employee's problem? For example, let's say the employee has a uh, an asthma or a breathing condition uh, where the mask. In fact, they even had one case where an employee be, had a psychological fear of wearing masks uh, and was told that uh, that that they either put the mask on or they were going to have to have another job. And that's what happened. They were transferred to another location in the hospital during that period of time. So I, I think that since we're just getting into this situation, I don't think all the states have made decisions and know what they're going to do about this, Rick. Well, no, if you claim to have a medical reason for not wearing a mask, like the one in the asthma case, uh, medical reasons have been successful. If the medical grounds for you're not using the, the uh, getting the shot is that is listed under the Americans for Disability Act. Americans for Disability Act lists a whole bunch of things that that qualify right. under this act. If you have a disorder that is on on that list, great. If you have a disorder that's not on that list, you're not gonna you're not gonna have much success. A, few, a refusal for secular, non-medical reasons has not gone over well with employers or courts. Employees who are successful in avoiding vaccinations still are required to take measures to protect themselves and their co-workers from infection. And in these cases, a hospital can offer this, as you said, an accommodation. There are no cases that have uh, that have upheld an employee's right to refuse such accommodations. If the person says, no, I'm not going to wear a mask. Uh, I can't wear a mask, uh, so I'm not going to. I'm not going to get the shot. I'm not going to wear the mask. I'm not going to. Then, if they refuse the accommodation, you're out on your butt. Well, the other thing is, in medicine, uh, we wear masks for lots of reasons. It's like we wear latex gloves for lots of reasons. We do lots of things which have nothing to do with COVID, 
but we're perfectly good. And so people knew that when they took the job. And so there, there has not been a lot of sympathy uh, for people who have been against the mask wearing, the gowning, the this, the that, uh, uh, because they, they feel that they, they can be given or offered other assignments during this period of time. Uh, in this article, they generated four other questions that were kind of interesting, like, is an employer exempt from paying workers' compensation to an employee who refuses vaccination and then contacts the virus on the job? I, I don't think there's a case of that yet. Is there, Rick? But, no, not that I know, but it's a, it's a fabulous kind of question. You yeah. would not get the vaccine. Now you've got the virus and uh, you want us to pay. Thank you very yeah. much. You know, what, what you can say is this, in a, in a courtroom where there's a jury of your peers, I don't think you would be very popular <laughs> as, the, as the person sitting in front of a jury. Second one, can an employer require pre-vaccination as a precondition of employment? I would think the answer to that is probably yes, but uh, that, that ACLU may get after me. But but I would you know nobody you can't go back to college in the fall without a shot your shots right that, that's a precondition for you being on campus and I so I that being the case I think uh, and you know there's all this accommodation crap and all that other stuff yeah, but yeah. Um, is it within a patient's uh, patient's rights to ascertain whether a healthcare worker is vaccinated can you as a patient say who doesn't have COVID say, um, I'm concerned about my, uh, this nurse who's not vaccinated. I want to be or only taken care of by vaccinated people so I don't well, get COVID. Well, we know here in the state of Michigan, people have been allowed to ask about what are the precautions that you're taking for my safety here in this hospital, you know, making decisions. Does everybody do X, Y, and Z? So that has been allowed. Now, uh, whether that would be true in, this, in a specific case on a specific person coming in to take care of you, I, I have not seen that case. Have you, have you seen well, a no, California these, case? These are just questions that uh, are yeah. brought up by this I, uh, idea of refusal. Last one, will a court hold a hospital liable if an employee refuses vaccination and is the source of an illness to a patient or to another employee, I I got sick because of you. Yes. Now, you're, now Mr. Hospital, you're liable. Well, I, I think uh, that if the hospital knows that that uh, employee X is COVID positive by testing and does not accommodate them or does not take them off direct patient care, um, I can see where where that would be a, a foreseeable harm that the hospital should have taken care of. Yeah, I think all four of these questions is, are definitely going to come up. Uh, I, I was really discouraged to see a, a news article that said 40% of the people in the U.S. Marines have refused are refusing vaccination. I didn't know that a Marine or in the armed service could refuse anything. It's like you, the, we own them. You, you need shots, you're going to get shots. Well, what I don't understand is why this particular shot, because Marines, particularly all of those who are going to be deployed, 
have to take all kinds of shots. Right. They have yellow fever shots. They 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 have malaria uh, medications they have to take. There are all kinds of things which the military requires in people who are who are deployed. So I'm not sure uh, if they all refuse to take the shot wh- whether they can do that or not. Well, I don't honestly. I don't know whether it's whether they can refuse or not. But I, maybe they were asked if you would, re, you know, are right. you up for it? And they said <laughs> no. And I think that that is super, super discouraging. Anyway, Greg, that is the April issue of Risk Management Monthly. I want to thank Dr. Tots for the wine of the month. Yes. And we'll so- sign off and talk to you next time. Bye for now. Bye-bye. <laughs>